Kia Welcome back to Hour of the Wolf. Today we're um, releasing um, a previously recorded episode. We did this back in 29th January this year, talking to Manukadi from Hikurangi Cannabis Company back then, now Rua Bioscience. Um, this encounter was a very special one because um, he was traveling the next day abroad and I was traveling the next day to the east coast so it was kind of a very short time window that we could meet and it was kind of very very out of nowhere it came together and and we were able to have this conversation so it's more of a retrospective episode is focused about how the situation on, on cannabis regulations and what the outlook was back then back in January this year so there's been what it's that's already almost 10 months past and a lot has changed and it's very obvious once we listen to Panapa talk and uh, I hope this can offer you a, a very interesting perspective on how this specific company has evolved, how the whole cannabis scene in Aotearoa, New Zealand has changed. And it's a very fun conversation. Something to look out for is the kind of eagerness that I I showed during this conversation, because this was the first ever recorded conversation for this podcast. And it was kind of all I ever wanted and dreamed up to that moment. So you can see me go full fanboy on Manuk Gatti and just go asking these questions and interrupting and being like, ooh, 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 I want to know about this. Ooh, ooh, I want to know about that. So I hope you can enjoy it as much as I did. And just while editing this episode, I had so much fun and laughed at myself. So take it with a light heart and enjoy. And I'll, I'll catch up with you after the conversation. Hello, David. Very well, thanks. All right, I'm very excited to have you here. Um, been waiting for this moment for a while, uh, but I think it's been kind of a very well coordinated thing that has come out through a lot of coincidences. And we were talking about that a little bit before. Um, so you're here in Auckland today because you're traveling to the Himalayas. Hmm. Yep, um, got a stop off in Thailand on the way. They've just legalized medical cannabis, so uh, got a couple of meetings there. Um, and, yeah, and then on to uh, the Asian Hemp Summit uh, that's uh, organized by a group of Europeans, but uh, there will be some, some Asian speakers there from Mongolia and um, Nepal and uh, China, I think, um, and India. So, yeah, that's uh, two, uh, two days, the 1st and 2nd of February. Uh, Quite excited about that and the opportunities there to talk about how hemp is uh, evolving in, in Asia uh, in terms of the, the market um, but particularly my interest is in those um, land race strains you know cannabis comes from the Himalayan region or across that sort of um, path from from Asia through to uh, Eastern Europe and um, so really excited to be visiting some communities there uh, with a local who is uh, going to be working with us and he uh, is going to take me to his village and into a number of communities where 
uh, cannabis just grows wild, you know, on the side of the road in the hills. And um, as a child, he was uh, treated with cannabis for a range of health conditions. And we are interested in, and particularly he's interested in building the uh, capabilities in his community to uh, become partners or players in the global cannabis industry somehow. Uh, so we are talking about opportunities to build the capacity of the community to characterise what they've got there, to understand, to identify um, different strains or varieties or cultivars, chemovars, um, work with the university in uh, Kathmandu to, to do some of that uh, and with our own researchers and to really sort of to establish an organisation that's owned by the, the community there, similar to what we've done in Rutoria, and to uh, begin their research and development journey with the goal of, uh, for us, I guess, is not only supporting them in, in that, but potentially an opportunity to partnership from one indigenous community to another, um, sharing cannabis knowledge and, and expertise. Um, so yeah, that's the exciting part, and also looking to go into northern India, and there's uh, some of the states there have legalised hemp for, uh, industrial hemp for cultivation and production, mostly for food and fibre. And uh, there's other parts of India where cannabis has been grown uh, with some pretty impressive uh, uh, chemical profiles of the, the cannabinoids. And uh, we're interested in, again, meeting with those communities and, and likewise uh, helping them set up something to protect and look after the knowledge and the, um, the, the plants that they, they have available, that they own, you know, that's their intellectual property, uh, and then to discuss opportunities as we go down the track for, for partnerships in the long term. And of course, for the, you know, the strains that are around the world, there's been, you know, there's strain hunters as a TV program or, yeah. a, you know, there's... Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a profession now. Yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, the hippies and everyone sort of got... Yeah, and the next uh, Indiana Jones is going to be looking for weed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's going to go find the, the gold strain yeah. of, of the aliens. Yeah. yeah. Um, every... every Part of what you just described sounds amazing. Uh, there's so many potential things that you could achieve and especially what you're saying is um, bringing that power back to the communities. And, and most of that power, well, from what I hear, comes from knowledge and, and how That's to right. approach the yeah. problem of becoming a legal um, company or a legal institution that produces medical cannabis with a face uh, out of just being um, a, a community that has used it just by default for m millennia, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's also really exciting to hear about um, cannabis growing widely because, well, the first thing I think is the endless crossing that goes on between the, the, the plants that are just growing everywhere without anyone supervising, hey, I want more THC or I want more mm. CBD or oh, what is this new thing, CBG, and, yeah. you know, um, just how the plant really looks like when it's left alone mm. and, and what it produces. Mm. I think there there might be a lot of knowledge to gain from that, um, especially since we've distorted this plant so much through our constant mm. and incessant crossing and crossing. Um, so good things ahead, eh? Yeah, yeah, while I'm there, um, I'll... Colleagues, uh, the plant scientists uh, are often South America, Paraguay, um, oh, sorry, Uruguay, uh, Colombia, and in Panama. Uh, again, meeting. Um, there's four 
indigenous communities in Colombia that we're looking to partner with as well. So um, heard already in cannabis production, uh, legal cannabis production there. So yeah, exciting times. Very excited about that. I actually have some family that might be involved in, in mm. a couple of, of actually they're involved with people that are involved uh, in, in cannabis production in Colombia. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of good things. Um, some people feel like they have a lot of stuff figured out, that they're really solid, and they're branching out, networking. Mm. And that's, yeah, I can see that everybody's doing that, um, especially in emerging markets. Uh, so, but before we talk more about the future, I want to know about the past five, ten years of like what brought you here? Mm. Why, why are you here in my living room? Man? <laughs> you invited me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, Hikurangi uh, started in 2015. We, uh, a group of locals around Ruatoria got together. There's Hapu, which are the, you know, the sub tribes. Um, 2012, we'd had uh, the Pro settled with the Crown around their treaty claims. Um, and so the Fano Hapu started to be thinking more about um, development, less about getting that redress from the Crown and what are we going to do with it, what are we going to do together. Um, so there was yeah, these, these collectives that got together, um, very focused on things like education, uh, cultural revitalization of the language and so on, and environmental protection, trying to uh, address some of the consequences of 100 years of farming and forestry and what's those industries have done for the land and the water um, so that was the focus and when we started talking about economic uh, development it was sort of the elephant in the room everyone knows that you know like it's probably about five percent of the tribe that now remain in the tribal area um, and everyone else has left to find work mostly uh, and opportunities elsewhere so economic development jobs is is the the big need um, but we're all sort of struggling with what could we do as you know, people with nothing really, um, but you know, some ideas and some commitment to try and create something. So uh, we looked at what resources were available, the natural resources of the land um, and the water and the people. The, um, the land is a, about a quarter of it's covered with kanuka and manuka, um, what people have called scrub, uh, but now see some real economic opportunity in the honey industry and, and more so oil. How long has that been going on, manuka? Um, 15, 20 it's years. Really young. Very young, yeah. And on the coast, um, yeah, very little of it has been owned and controlled by the locals. It's mostly been outside companies. Manuka honey was always seen as a really low-grade honey that no one was really interested in. Um, it got stuck in the machines and and beekeepers tried to avoid it. Then they found this you know, awesome sort of healing properties in it and, and all of a sudden it became a really hot property and, and the beehives. So it's like cannabis in a way. Yeah, yeah. Because right now no one in New Zealand wants to touch it. Hmm. Uh, no one you know, with money wants to touch it, yeah. but just wait. 10 yeah. years. <laughs> I don't think we have to even wait, wait that long. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> wait three years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so na native um, plants was a focus, organisms including um, shellfish and things, and, and we looked at what could be high value. Um, so we don't, we're not just producing a commodity, but we're building IP and intellectual property um, that could be owned locally and, um, and using local resources. So we put a little bit of money into research around Kanuka uh, oil extracts and partnered up with a company that had done quite a lot around the Kanuka honey and um, 
from that it got us into things like medical research and proving that something does what you think it does. So we've made these connections and, and so that set us up quite well for, for cannabis. When it came along a couple of years later, so the end of 2016, someone said to us, have you thought about growing hemp as an industrial crop? Um, we said no, uh, but it sounds like it's probably a good idea given uh, the skill base in our community. The East Coast is well known for supplying other parts of the country with their uh, cannabis supplies. And um, and we'll give it a go. We could see looking at the the legislative regulatory uh, area and the industry overseas that there were some some potential opportunities there. So we planted a we got some some seed off uh, this other family that had been growing on a very small trial plot near Gisborne. They gave us a bunch of their seed when we got a license and um, and we did our first crop. When we put that crop down, we didn't know what we were going to use it for. When we applied for our license, you have to say what you're going to yeah. use it for. And I, I can't remember the exact details, but it was pretty vague. Um, <laughs> yeah, we really weren't sure. By the time, you know, the three, four months of that, that crop growing, we did our homework and worked out that uh, cannabis, medicinal cannabis was where we really wanted to, to focus that fiber was probably the lowest value um, product that you could derive from, from what we were growing. Food was there, but it was really marginal in terms of the, the seed, particularly at that time where food wasn't, hemp foods weren't legal. Yeah. The only thing you could make is the cold-pressed oil. And, and not so popular as it is now. Yeah, people, the market needed to be educated and so on. So, yeah, focus on pharmaceuticals. It's what we knew from the work we'd been doing with the, the native organisms, and um, so that's the direction that we we took. And, um, yeah, I guess the rest is history. We did another crop previous season and then there's um, some growing this season but we've had to give up the hemp well, after we got our medical cannabis yeah. license so but all of it's been predicated on sort of yeah, our mandate and our, our real priority is whatever's going to create jobs and economic development for our right. part of the country. So could you do me a big favor and just tell me the difference between hemp and cannabis? Sure so hemp is really I mean it's all cannabis um, Industrial hemp is a legal term that's uh, outlined in the Industrial Hemp Regulations 2006 in New Zealand and different jurisdictions around the world have different definitions. In New Zealand it's any cannabis, and I think it says cannabis sativa, which is quite limiting as well, but I don't think they hold anyone to that because it doesn't really exist. Um, uh, The definition is it has to be below 0.35% to be an approved cultivar, so they have a limited number of 0.35% uh, THC, okay. uh, and only 12, I think, cultivars are currently approved, because they've proven, you know, you, you take it through a couple of cycles and demonstrate that it's consistently stable at below that level. Um, so there's no phenotypes that bring out 20% THC. That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah, but again, the testing regime in New Zealand is pretty relaxed and open to abuse potentially. If people wanted to be selective in what they sent off for testing, yeah. um, they could. It's not like the auditors come out and pick the plants from your crop. You can send them whatever samples you want. Uh, you have to tell them that you've taken a random sample from around the is that, grow area. I hope that that's feedback that we're sending their way, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully they've picked up on that. It's a little yeah. loophole in the yeah, glitch in the system that is open to abuse, I suppose. All right, um, so how yeah, did so you get involved with Hikarangit, you, you personally? Uh, so I was part of these hapu discussions, um, and then uh, myself and a couple of others, or yeah, pretty much one other mate, Panapa, um, we decided to organize some 
community events. We, we brought some scientists into the community and had a couple of public meetings. Um, we had about 30 people come to the first one where these guys looked at, they looked around the district and said, well, you could do this or that, and with a particular focus on bioactive extracts. But they looked at things like onion growing because we're so remote, the seeds from onions are quite problematic if you're trying to breed uh, for seed and so on. So we looked at a range of things, and by the second meeting we had 10 people, 10 or 12, um, and we started thinking about, oh, should we set up something that might sort of help local businesses to grow and might be some shared services like accounting and, and business support. Um, yeah, there's a bit of support around that and looking at recycling options and what, what we could do to create, create some jobs. Yeah. Um, and then by the third meeting, sort of a month or so after the first one, we left, we, yeah, we were down to five people. <laughs> and uh, at that meeting we were like, oh, let's just do something because if we don't set something up right now, then it'll just be back to Panapuru myself. Yeah. So, okay, let's make it a company. We're going to uh, make it a charitable company if we can. We didn't know if that was possible, but we wanted to do something that would be of community benefit, not just for private gain. Um, and the five people that were at that meeting, we said, let's, you know, the five people here will be the directors um, and call it Hikurangi Enterprises because we don't know quite what it's going to do, so it needs to be broad, but Hikurangi's the mountain. Um, and the area that we were looking at being the core sort of focus of the the business and the enterprises is the area that Hikurangi Mountain Shadow falls on, mostly sort of there's an area on the east coast sort of between Waipiro Bay and Rangitukia, sort of two settlements that we really wanted to, to focus on. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's not just Rotoria, um, it's the area around Hikurangi. Yeah, yeah, and even the whole East Coast and potentially New Zealand, um, yeah, this, it's as wide as you want it to be. But Because that's not a, a, an issue that is unique to Rotoria and the East Coast. That's it's right. A, it's, um, uh, translating from what I've been through, uh, I, I think what you're saying is we Hikurangi is trying to Mm. substitute an, an extraction economy or an extractive economy for uh, an economy that uh, generates um, lasting prosperity for the people that work it basically um, and that is <laughs> that is uh, a kind of a, the best way of capitalism that I can come up with because everybody was gonna be getting money in the end but that if, if it, this is by themselves and for themselves um it's a lot more legitimate yeah i like to think of myself as a, an anarchist who's been quite um critical of capitalism and it's in most of its forms but i've certainly been inspired by things like um, mondragon and um in spain and um, the basque country where it's a it's a large corporate cooperative so all of the workers um own that that company and it's, it's a multinational now. It started in the 50s and 60s and it's just grown. Um, but there's ways of organising and doing business, I think, which um, are better than others. Not necessarily perfect, but um, yeah, much, much better. So we were looking for those sort of models and, and structures and they really didn't exist that we could find easily in, in New Zealand. Like setting up a charitable company was quite challenging. Um, so the format is not very widespread here no no not at all you know we have the biggest company in the country is you know Fonterra and, and that's a cooperative a producer cooperative essentially mm -hmm. um, but it's you know very limited so the you know the sheer milkers and, and others don't necessarily benefit from you know the um, 
but so the, so cooperatives and you know in, in Southern Cross Health Healthcare is the largest insurance provider and they're a cooperative and so on. So there's definitely models there of cooperatives, but um, being able to really distribute the proceeds and the, the surplus and um, and have a, a wider uh, set of values than just economic returns. So looking at environmental returns and social returns and so on. Um, yeah, the, so social enterprise, um, as a popular movement was also just kind of starting to get some legs around the time that, that we were getting set up and so we did find a bit of support but everyone was kind of scratching around for when we asked for templates of constitutions or business structures and things there really wasn't a lot to to, to um, draw from so yeah. anarchists you can draw from them yeah lot. yeah I mean <laughs> uh, logistically speaking I mean about the organization and how it's shaped mm. it's flat you know, horizontal. Yeah, in theory, um, an anarchist company would be. Ours isn't necessarily. I'm, I'm the CEO, I'm a managing director, and um, <laughs> and have to make decisions sometimes. Um, but certainly, my my style is definitely participatory in, in leadership, and and we try and include everyone affected as much as possible in decisions um, that are made. But yeah, you got to. We're also a business that has commercial imperatives to be, you know, to survive. We've got to move quickly, and um, yeah. and one of the things in the structure that we set up was trying to do something that was community owned, but not necessarily needing a hundred committees or, you know, a lot of bureaucracy to make a simple decision. Um, particularly in business, where you've got to be able to make decisions fast, and particularly in the cannabis industry, which is moving so fast, especially right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. but. It seems like you have the the eye on the ball. So you you're talking about well, you're not talking about creating a company. You already created the company. But what you're you're kind of reminiscing about how it what the biggest concern was when you started wasn't what we're gonna sell or what how are we gonna make money. It's like how we're gonna distribute this money or how we're gonna make this money work for the people that are yeah. working for yeah. this money. So the yeah, the structure is really um, the. Providing a strong foundation, a platform, and so that company I described is just the first part. That didn't have any money, so we're like, well, how are we going to do anything? We've got a, this research we want to do, and so on. Myself and a friend um, came up with some money. We put, we organised a, a joint venture with a charitable company, um, and and that model is one that other families, when they have an idea and, and want to get something going, can partner with that charitable company. And the way we did it was we owned forty percent of that joint venture. And the charitable company owned sixty percent. The charitable company at the time didn't contribute anything much to the thing, but we wanted to make sure that the majority of ownership stayed with the community, even though we were bringing most of the, the resource to kick it off and make it happen. Um, and it's that entity is now continuing on with a focus on those bioactives, and it's where the, the cannabis and hemp uh, company derived from. You know, it was sort of born in there, but it's it's come out of there um, and, and become its own thing now, quite separate from where it was um, started so and other things in time may come out of that likewise other families may um, and have talked about starting uh, similar ventures but in other industries and sectors that are connected to this community company and um, yeah and then we set up the investment company when we needed some cash and again sort of did it in a way that um, lots of people can participate but control ultimately resides with the community so the, the charitable company appoints the directors and has the only voting rights on that investment company all the shareholders don't essentially have any voting rights as, as shareholders which is quite different to a normal investment company but 
those people believed in the cause. Um, they wanted to support what we we're trying to do um, in the other year. So there's 1,500 people who put in two and a half million um, on the basis that they'd have no control over their funds, but they wanted to see what we were doing happen and they'll get some benefit down the track if and when there's a, a dividend. Do you find that impressive uh, that 1,500 people were willing to get together two, two and a half million dollars and just give it to a very trusted group of people? Yeah, when you look back on it, when you put it like that, yep. Um, you know, I think we did a lot of hard work and um, in, in building the, like you say, the trust and confidence, and that was what what's key. Um, and so, yeah, it's it, that there wasn't a. Well, in some ways, it was a quick process. In other ways, um, we we took the community on a journey with us, and to to begin with, there were a lot of knockers and people that are cynical and and critical um, still are and so are and um and you know many of them um our own family members and, and so on um so but but we found that people's concerns as we were able to provide explanations and, and things and to say look this is still a really risky industry there's no regulation there's no industry you're putting your money into something that you could potentially lose it all so um yeah those were the balancing sort of um, tensions and the the, the process, um, but yeah, super happy that people had that level of confidence in us. We didn't know where it was going to go. So the way it works out basically is, um, let's say Hikarang is hugely successful and best wishes. So that's, that's what I would like to see. Um, and then how, how is that decision making only being relegated to a few people? gonna affect it in the long run so how is that something that concerns you that uh, it might get separated from the the people that built it or owns it and then it's gonna kind of become one of the same yeah that's certainly a risk um, we've built into the shareholding arrangement so um, yeah again there's a number of entities involved um, so the the investment that came in through the crowdfunding, as I said, we set up an investment vehicle that holds those funds, that has a board that's independent of the cannabis company. Um, they uh, co-invested with the company that founded the, the cannabis venture um, and formed, and together they formed the cannabis company and 100% own that between those two entities. So in, in way, the, way we, the, the reason we did that was to um, make that cannabis company more attractive for private other institutional investors who didn't want to have to deal with 1500 shareholders um, or even necessarily the investment company they just wanted one partner that, that they were joining with um, and so we, we did that it, that structure was attractive to a couple of institutional investors or quite a few you know we had 20 i think expressions of interest from kiwi saver fund managers to um, offshore companies and in some New Zealand uh, natural health product companies and yeah, a range of wide range, uh, high net worth individuals and families and so the structure worked for them and that's what we, we saw we needed. We weren't going to be able to raise all the money we needed from the crowd because there's a two million dollar cap in New Zealand on every 12 months for a crowd fund. Okay. So we knew we were going to have to find some more funds. We weren't going to be able to borrow it because we had no revenue You know, and lenders usually want to see some, some income before they'll and particularly given that we didn't have a license at the time, we didn't have um, legislation uh, that would enable the, the business to exist. <laughs> so, so it's an uphill battle all the time. Yeah, and you know that's a huge risk that those investors um, were prepared to take, both the crowdfunding investors and the institutional investors that came on. So 
the way we've been able to structure the um, company at the moment, the cannabis company, is to protect um, local interests, but it doesn't give full control to, to locals. Uh, that wasn't going to happen if we wanted someone else's money. They don't part with $7 million in. Just, there's not that much trust and confidence, uh, particularly sure. for people that haven't run a business um, anywhere yeah. near that size before. So, yeah. Absolutely. So it's, it's so what you develop is more of a kind of a fail-safe process to uh, reaching a balance between the community mm. getting their interests met yep. and and then the company and the inve the other non-community investors to also get what they're expecting to get. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, so the mechanisms in there mean that nobody can sell anything off without the others agreeing to it. Um, so that's the we're sharing that level of responsibility and, and those rights to protect our investments and the, the community interests and so on. In time, we've also said you know we'd like to if if we are able to generate further funds as a community, there's opportunity potentially to buy back some of those shareholdings from the other investors. Likewise, we're probably going to be able to open it up for other investors, both through the crowd and, and um, institutional investors to come on and allow us to take it to the next level. Awesome. All right, so there's one further issue that I would like to, to talk about is um, you, you say that Ikurangi is created around the idea of being a social enterprise. Um, so I would like to, to know more about what a social enterprise is, but also I would like to, if you could, Tell me about some of the ongoing or the things that already have improved in the communities that Hikurangi is um, looking to help or that they're, they're currently being empowered by Hikurangi. So what is what what has changed? What's new? What's um, what's improved? So social enterprise is kind of a trendy buzzword at the moment. Um, for Māori, I think it's... Māori enterprises have always been a social enterprise because it's nearly always been a communal effort um, to generate finance um, and other you know jobs and so on from what resources Māori have been left with to do something with. Um, so, so social enterprise isn't new in that risk regard, but um, it does influence things around, you know, again, our institutional shareholders um, are very supportive of, but also it takes them a little bit to get their head around some of the the ideas around um, the benefits are, that are being generated and the value generated is beyond just the financial. So there's the environmental impact or the um, employment impact, which is uh, in, in other social uh, outcomes. So those are outcomes which a normal business will do as part of their, these days, corporate social responsibility obligations, more so from a PR and marketing perspective than a really core values. And I know there's some some companies and there's certainly founders who um, hold very strongly to those values and try to make sure that they're embedded throughout, um, which could also be called social enterprise. Um, yeah, so that those are um, really important uh, considerations. When we go to what the board are going to be measuring the, the management team on and that sort of stuff, it's not just the bottom line and return to, to shareholders. Um, it's about some of those other um, social, environmental, cultural, even um, value that's being created. So it, the difference between a regular company and a social enterprise is, is how you measure success. 
how your your company is successful or not successful is not just is not measured in the same way. It's not viewed at all in the same way. I think so. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. The social enterprise experts will tell me that's too simplistic, but um, you know, at, at one end you have the charitable company is you know a more pure expression of a social enterprise potentially. Um, at the other end, you have a corporate which happens to um, make sure that it's looking after the environment or trying to improve its, um, its social impact and, and so on. So social enterprise can can sit on that continuum uh, along the way. And, you know, Hikurangi probably um, is placed at different positions at different times, depending on um, yeah, where we're at and, and what's the focus. But overall, you know, I think we can still confidently claim to be a, a social enterprise um, and we'll make sure that that's embedded in uh, the, the plans as we go forward. In terms of the local benefits derived to date, they've, they've been very limited um, and there's certainly concern and um, and probably some criticism in the community that we're not moving fast enough and creating jobs and certainly we, we held out that jobs would be created and we've made uh, three, four five permanent jobs in Ruatoria at the moment. There's 20 something people working in Gisborne for us, collectively sort of equivalent to about 10 full-time positions. Um, so yeah, very modest jobs created so far, but again, we're not earning any revenue yet. We're burning through the investors' cash and, um, and need to spend that wisely. And we're moving as quickly as we can to create jobs in the regulatory context that we exist within at present. But uh, the people that are currently occupying these these roles or kind of manning these posts, um, how is their their outlook looking? Is it, it has that been an impact that you could be kind of proud of? Yeah, certainly. I think you know there's jobs that have been created not only within the company but in things like the courses that have been run through the local polytech. That it's hemp cultivation connected to the company that we help set up. Um, those have created employment for tutors um, in for people that um, hadn't been tutors before and, and so on. So there's new uh, work experience and, and income opportunities that are sort of the um, sort of uh, flow on effects of for what we've been doing in the wider community. Um, and yeah, and the people that have worked, you know, genuinely appreciated and, and are, um, are grateful for, for the opportunity to work in an industry that they love and, you know, hope that will, will grow. Um, and we are optimistic and, and can see the job creation happening quite quickly um, as we get into revenue. Um, so yeah, lots, lots of um, positives and, and hope still um, within the people that we've employed and in the wider community. I'm very glad to hear that. Um, there's there's a lot of, of expectations coming uh, from New Zealand in general, I think, uh, towards Hikurangi and, and and what comes out of, of the East Coast. Uh, that's that's something I'm looking forward to. Uh, but I know, like, by just looking at the Facebook community that I, I look at every day, they, the level of involvement grows every day. Um, um, every time that someone posts something online or there's a conversation starting from this uh, kind of social media, interactions uh, there's a little bit more given by the people that are are, are talking it's um, I can see that 
this person came once and said something really cynical and something kind of harmful to the conversation and then uh, he this person saw that the, the conversation just kept going it, it didn't matter that he threw a rock at it uh, the conversation just kept going and then this person comes back uh, a little, with a little bit more information and sometimes uh, maybe it makes a little bit more sense uh, this time and and then they act they can actually engage in the conversation and 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 it, 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 I've seen changes in the way I see things the way uh, other people see things. Uh, I've had people being a bit um, passionate about their views uh, towards me. And, and it, it's been amazing because um, one of them, I remember they told me, do you even understand what Hikurangi is, 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 is offering? Like what, what their model is? Do you know anything about um, the Maori production system or scheme that they're um, um, proposing and and I realized well I can grasp the concept but I don't know the specifics I don't know the history I don't know all of that and this person is absolutely right to check me on that because um, I'm saying hey I support I support these people but I I should and everybody that is should um, have a, a very deep knowledge of what they're actually supporting um, but thankfully um, a lot of people that I see on, on online, I see on Facebook, Twitter, everywhere, they actually do their homework and, and, and they know. And they're mostly patients that have years and years of experience treating them, their pain and their, and their uh, anxiety and their lack of sleep and appetite and all of that um, by themselves. And they are, they're not taking rubbish from anyone else. Mm. And they're actually quite passionate about the subject uh, because it's saved their lives. And, and they have a very good kind of a focus. Uh, they, they don't go attacking the people that attack them. They just say, hey, just mm. listen to this. Um, I'm, I'm telling you that this happened to me personally. This is not a friend of a friend of a friend. This is to me that happened. And I can show you the, the photos if you want, like the before and after and stuff. Um, and that is that is what this is all about. That is what Green Fairy Project wants to do: is um, make that conversation more accessible to everyone. Um, and and so I'm very glad that you're my first guest. Um, I was uh, recording the first episode the other t the other day, and and I was very kind of excited to announce my guests. And I'm like, ah, oh, I want to. I gotta tell these guys that Madocat is coming. And we're actually going to have a real conversation about cannabis because uh, everybody needs it. Everybody needs something to to channel all of that. Um, what's the what's the word? Uncertainty. Yeah. All of that. All of the doubts. All of the questions. All of the fears. Uh, and then I'm talking both sides of the aisle, all, both from the pro cannabis movement and the the, the against cannabis. Uh, or yeah, be no, safe with cannabis movement. Um, they are both entitled to the same kind of, of access to this information. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I believe you are one of the people that are, are in a position that in a position to give this some of this information uh, because of your work or your involvement in the industry. Uh, but we have doctors and, and advocates and patients and politicians and everyone uh, should be involved in this. Um, so I've only been here in this country for three years, uh, not even, I'm going to be three years 
soon. And I, I have a sort of clear picture of what's going on in cannabis uh, here in New Zealand, but I, I would like to paint a clearer picture, uh, kind of a, um, a place where we can all start from to talk about what's going on. Um, yeah. I, would, I would like you to kind of offer me a bit of your expertise on that subject. Yeah, as I said, you know, and the reason I accepted the generous offer to um, just to be interviewed is I really do believe that there's a, a massive um, education process that needs to happen and just a respectful dialogue process that needs to happen um, that, you know, we can... Uh, and I've really appreciated listening to some of the podcasts overseas and the interactions and and the sustained sort of... You, you don't necessarily want to read a long paper or um, whatever, and I just think there's a real place for some independent perspective that's not you know owned by one of the companies or by government um, or by an activist organization that that can provide a bit of um, considered balanced um, yeah objective um, as, as you can be yeah uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't really claim to be objective uh, yeah, completely because yeah. I, I am a patient that it's using it yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm I'm absolutely for cannabis mm. I think that it should grow as it grows in, in the Himalayans. Uh, I, I think that I should just be able to go outside to my, my backyard and pick it up and yeah. you know, not even care about um, where it came from that much because I know it's, it's back there. Mm. Uh, or my neighbor has some that, you know, yeah. he's got some left from the last crop and, and I, I just, I couldn't get mm. around to growing anything this year so yeah. I can grab it from them and I trust them. Uh, so something that's everyday life, it's, uh, I, I see the same way I see chamomile and lavender and, and mm. manuka, yep. um, because that's the way I use it. Yep. So, and I think those views are shared by many, many, many people. Um, and, and then we've got the, the, what we'd like to see versus the, what we've got at the moment and what's the best path to getting what we'd like to see. And that's the, where we disagree sometimes on, on what the best strategy is. Um, but there's a place for everybody, I think, and, um, and, and finding change and forcing change and encouraging change and supporting change. Mm. All right. So you were talking about those words lately on a post on Facebook. I remember you were looking, <laughs> you were crowdsourcing some knowledge about, um, uh, a kind of a a workaround directing or 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 managing or is more about encouraging and and, <laughs> That's right. and and kind of setting a path that we can all walk together right like uh, i can see it's a very funny thing cannabis is a very passionate subject for everybody that talks about it uh well, not everybody i've had some friends that are just oh yeah i smoke it because i like it I don't really care if it gets legalized or not. I'm gonna still get it from hmm. where I'm I'm getting it right now, uh, and I get that. There, it's not a defining factor in their lives at all. It's just something that they do when they want to escape a bit. Hmm. Um, and and I want to touch on that later because I think that as one of the uses that is available from cannabis, that but maybe it's not the one that we want to encourage. Um, but the people that are actually getting the most out of cannabis are really passionate about it. Mm. And then the people that are kind of mm, risking the most if cannabis gets legalized are really passionate about not getting it legalized. Um, and 
you can understand why both are so um, committed to their their own their own views. Um, there's people that rely on 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 drugs as as their policy maker and how how they they engage the public and how they get their votes. So we get politicians that are very mm. engaged on on blocking cannabis uh, because it it doesn't fit their agenda very well. That's what I'm seeing from from my point of view out of my window. Um, and then we get these people that are just patients, literally patients just waiting for the government to come through with uh, what they need. It's not something that they've been asking it about it for decades, right? Mm-hmm. We've been all asking about cannabis being legalized since the since it stopped being legal. Um, but it's, it's more than that they need it, more than what we want to kind of force it into society no it's something that we need to have legal and safe access to mm. not something that we want uh, people smoking outside of schools um, that's not kind of the view that we're mm. we're all having in our heads when we say oh yeah legalize cannabis um, so what is the situation for patients and potential patients right now in New Zealand. So if, if well, I'm, I know about my situation as a patient, but any other person that needs or could be, could be benefiting from access to cannabis, what's their situation right now? Uh, as you say, there's um, many places to access it through unofficial means. And um, again, as an anarchist, I'd, with my anarchist hat on, I'd... <laughs> I'd have no issue with that as a uh, license holder of a medicinal cannabis uh, license I'd um, have to probably yeah, I don't know I don't think they'd be able to take the license off me if I encouraged it um, it's not breaking the law to encourage someone else to, to do that I don't think um, <laughs> but um, the legal avenues at this point are uh, still as they were before the law changed mostly in that um, to access a medicinal cannabis product that's not a CBD product by the government's definition you need to um, have support from your GP and a specialist in the Ministry of Health will need to um, agree and you have to provide evidence that you've tried everything else and it hasn't been as effective as you think cannabis could be um, or the GP needs to provide that uh, and so that's a long, expensive and frustrating process and then the products themselves are incredibly expensive as well. So that's not a very, yeah, nobody thinks that the current situation is a good one, including none of the politicians in Parliament at the moment based on their, their votes. Um, the CBD product definition uh, got changed and had a, we had a discussion with the Ministry of Health on Friday about, about that and what its exact statuses at present whether it is now the changed version or it's the old version um, it's very technical and even in the new version what we thought we were getting isn't what we actually got so the old version said that you needed 98% CBD of total cannabinoids present total cannabinoids um, and what they changed it to they flipped it around and said you should have no more than 2% uh, THC but instead of saying of total cannabinoids or total product as it is in most other jurisdictions, they made it total cannabidiol or CBD. So, so you should <laughs> go figure. 
Okay. Um, which they don't seem to have realized that's what they did. Um, they, is that a typo, you think? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, what is it, two or three letters different? Um, yeah. But it makes all the difference in terms of the um, chemistry and the, the product formulation and so on. It just doesn't make sense at all in a, no. in a chemical sense. Yeah. So 2% THC of total CBD is a much, much higher threshold to reach than <laughs> 2% of total cannabinoids or let alone, yeah, 2% um, of the product um, volume. So that's something we're working with them on. Unfortunately, it will require another law change to fix that. Um, and there's one or two other glitches in the, the way the law's been written that may also need um, some, some tweaking. So... There's yeah, some ongoing discussion there, but the regulations are in progress and um, again the status of, uh, and my understanding is that this year the provision for uh, patients with palliation, um, as the government defines that, which it doesn't really just says palliation. Hmm. Um, There's no definition there. Yeah, they, they are able to avoid prosecution of found with um, plants um, their caregivers and so on wouldn't necessarily be provided with those um, uh, dispensations from prosecution which creates all sorts of issues um, and the government's view is that that's a temporary arrangement until the new scheme is in place and there's a lot of misunderstanding I think in the the media about that provision where there was some sort of uh, implied or explicitly claimed suggestion that only people with palliation will ever be eligible they'll be, they'll be the ones who are eligible forever and no one else will be but that's not at all what the, the law or the intent of the legislation is in talking to the officials it's basically any condition that a GP and patient believe cannabis can help will be an eligible condition so that's the thinking at the moment whether that's what actually makes it into the regulations or we end up with a list of conditions is another matter but um, certainly the, the officials and the politicians I've spoken to and are planning to write a list that may come, you know, the GPs association or the specialist medical professionals may say actually it's safer if you start with a list. I actually have a list. <laughs> yeah. I do. It's, it's not hard. Yeah. You, you go online, you, you look for a research, perp uh, research, research paper and then you find all of the possible medical applications that cannabis could have yeah. uh, that are being researched right now. Um, what would be better is a, a list of all the effects or all health conditions in total yeah yeah, yeah because I mean <laughs> make that the list. What, what I'm what I'm building to is the if you read these articles which a lot of journalists and, and politicians have haven't read quite clearly you like because that just solves so many questions if, if you actually go to the source of the of the knowledge you you can clarify a lot of things so I got a, a bunch of articles that I could recommend to any people interested but um, I'm gonna talk about this one um, that lists all of the potential uh, therapeutical applications of cannabis and uh, that goes from anti-inflammatory uh, properties to um, um, anti even antihistamine I think uh, it could be good for allergies for pain for inflammation for uh, depression stress anxiety insomnia uh, lack of appetite, um, neuropathic pain, I think is, is the term, um, and just a, a, a bunch of other things. And, and then if, if you really want to look at cannabis as something that's 
treating symptoms and, and not curing any diseases because effectively it cures it doesn't really cure many many illnesses it just treats them a lot better than a lot of uh, the the pharmaceutical drugs that we're getting uh, with fewer side effects and, and not so not so severe side effects um, so if you read that list um, you realize that cannabis is actually good for a lot more things that we are true like imagining as um, and there's the the, the tendency in, in, in legal markets usually is you legalize cannabis for chronic pain and you legalize cannabis for um, ep epilepsy mm -hmm. and, and for um, multiple sclerosis yeah, yeah. And, and some other really kind of uh, harsh uh, illnesses that would be seen as um, incompassionate not to include in the list. Um, and and then the list just keeps growing and growing and growing because it organically does so like because people are gonna keep coming and saying hey this is good for this let me use it because i'm already using it i've been using it for 10 years so just give me the legal access that i need to grow it or because uh, that's something that really admire from a lot of the people here in new zealand that use cannabis is that they grow their own mm -hmm. a lot of them uh, mainly those that are actually physically capable of doing it but that is something that you don't really see much uh, outside of the, like New Zealand if you see the the US the, the legal markets there people are not so engaging in, in, in providing their own medicine um, you often have those official carers who are able to supply yeah a limited absolutely. number of plants. yeah and 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 if you have the expertise if you know how to grow it better than a, a, any patient that might try to um, that's good. You got a skill. That's something that you can you can offer to your community. Um, but it shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be persecuted because of, of a skill that you're using to benefit your community. And, and especially if community is so vulnerable right now in a time of, of change, uh, I imagine there, whenever there's a new legal market coming open, um, what happens is there's a lot of, of uh, charlatans that come up and say, "Hey, hey, this this contains cannabis. This contains CBD," and and you can see a lot of that going on in 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 the U.S. That there's been a lot of scandals around uh, CBD products not actually containing a lot of CBD mm. uh, or containing a lot of other um, some of them natural uh, substances, but um, some of them not so natural substances that might kind of um, imitate the behavior of CBD or, or, or yeah. the effect of CBD and and people need protection from that people need a, a safety from from people that are, will take their money and, and run yeah. and and I don't think that we're addressing that at all yeah. especially if we're allowing patients to have cannabis related products but not anyone around them to provide it for them because why so what's what's the logic behind that i guess that's why we have regulations as well isn't it that to set some standards and, and and proceed with caution which is frustrating for those who are suffering on a daily basis and you know the bureaucrats have a job to do in protecting the public and and there's arguments that their ways of protecting are actually causing more harm than 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 the risk that's posed um, but i would say you know like i met a researcher and in the states recently who's she doesn't work for a company she doesn't have any vested interests she works in a university 
has been studying CBD in particular for a long time. Um, and admittedly, it's a, a, a my understanding was what they were um, administering was a pure CBD to mice uh, for something else. And they they had some discoveries which suggest that um, the mice with liver issues died when they took CBD in a way that other mice found CBD really helpful and healthy. Um, and that was a bit of a shock to me. And then one of the other guys there said, yeah, GW Pharma, there's a CBD product now and the, the product insert, you know, that's a real pharmaceutical product, warns people with liver conditions not to take the CBD product. So there's something with liver and CBD potentially that we should be aware of. And, and I've been going around saying, oh, CBD, you can't overdose, you can't, you know, hmm. uh, get addicted to it. And there's been no um, significant um, contraindications or, you know, interactions. But, but it does, it does potentiate other, you know, it does make some uh, medicines more potent if you're taking it with other things. So you need warnings around that kind of stuff. Um, and potentially, you know, there's, there's it's, it's also new... Um, that there's a lot, you know, while the drug's been used for thousands of years, it hasn't been used in the kind of um, environments that we now expect um, exactly. products to be produced so, and, and used in. As a pharmaceutical, it hasn't been explored, but the expertise about how to use cannabis to treat, uh, to treat a lot of illnesses is, is there. I mean, people that have been doing it for millennia, not just decades, yep. we're not talking about back in the 20th century where, where cannabis kind of um, came to the U.S. as a, as a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, we're talking about the people in the Himalayas and people in, in Colombia and people here in New Zealand that have been using um, uh, cannabis as a rongo, is it yeah. the right yeah. term? Um, as, a, as a natural medicine to just treat the symptoms. Yeah. Um, and as, as with all traditional medicines and, and herbal remedies and so on, and I guess that the questions are what's the level of risk that the public are prepared to take, what's the level of risk that politicians and bureaucrats are prepared to take, what's the level of risk that individual patients are prepared to take, um, and those are all potentially different, you know, places on this on the continuum, um, and you know, it's, um, that's where we have the, the tension, I guess, and the debate around um, what's acceptable, and, and everybody's got to push their line unfortunately some people have more power in those conversations and situations than others in terms of the ability to lock people up or do you believe uh, that as an anarchist do i believe it it's yeah. certainly the reality yeah <laughs> whether i support but, it but do you think that what we're doing right now isn't that us taking a bit of power back and using it in a very constructive way i can't fault people who uh, choose to grow their own and um and use it for themselves um, I, as we've just been talking about, uh, am cautious with people who will provide remedies for others, not the people who, who do that with wisdom and knowledge and um, not just good intentions, because I don't think good intentions are enough, it's um, actual understanding of what they're doing and, and who they're, they're doing it with. We have, you know, doctors get registered for a reason, uh, after they've proven that they're trustworthy to, to be prescribing. And, and so they're on. also accountable when they register. That's right. So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a thing of, yeah. of trust yeah. too. So if that trust exists in the community and the, the community is prepared to to take the risk and, and so on, then I don't see an issue with that. Um, but unfortunately, as you're alluding to, our society is a bit more um, dispersed than those 
accountabilities don't necessarily exist in the way that they have in traditional cultures. Uh, neither does the knowledge. You know, in, in many ways, the knowledge is much more accessible, but there's um, yeah varying qualities of knowledge that perhaps again in traditional communities you prescribed or you gave remedies um, within the knowledge that you're confident in, um, and and that again was trusted by the community and again like you're saying we've got plenty of snake oil salesmen and, oh, yeah. and women that, that are producing stuff which has turned out to be dangerous and and, that, and, 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 and damaging for yeah. cannabis as a, as, a, as a whole does that mean we should make it pharmaceutical only? definitely not um, no. and, and that's kind of what I was pointing uh, to it was it was more of we don't have a lot of experience of, of with cannabis as a pharmaceutical um, extract or, or as, a, as a compound we do know, like we have a relationship already with cannabis as a plant. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about humankind and cannabis. We have a relationship. We have history, right? But uh, as a as a as an isolate, CBD, we don't have a lot of experience with that. We do know how CBD um, kind of behaves when it's in, in presence of THC and 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 terpenoids and, and, and other substances that are present. Well, we're just starting to understand that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But I mean, we, we felt it very limited. Exactly. But but there's there's anecdotal knowledge, right? Yeah. And and we're familiar of uh, with how the plant behaves as a whole, and and a lot of researchers and scientists are, are starting to get familiar with what the plant does when it's isolated. The compounds are isolated from each other. And compared and, to many other compounds, its safety profile is is much better than absolutely other things that aren't controlled nearly as much. It took me the other day. I read four articles on 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 all the kind of the the possible uses of or, or medical applications of cannabis. It took me a day to read four articles, and and that's not something that everybody everybody can enjoy. And I certainly didn't enjoy the whole thing. Uh, but I did. I I just got information in my head that I, I was needing, and 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 it, it led me to to see what each individual compound does, and. And if you see that as a trained physician, and and you're not excited about that, mm. it's uh, it's it's weird. So mm. I think that this information should be available to, to a lot mm. more doctors yeah. and, and nurses and, and practitioners, yeah. and and especially because if you, if you see a, a a a sheet that has all of these potential applications, and you're a good doctor, you can see your patients there and say, oh, this could help David, or this could help Manu, or. Uh, Anyone else that's that's needing of, of treatment of pain or, or, or arthritis or, or anything else, uh, so these doctors could actually use that as a tool and and go to the Minister of Health and say, hey, I need this as a tool. Um, also, they could talk to patients about it, um, and 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 this information just needs to be out there. Uh, I want to talk about something really special to me personally and, and, and I think to the Green Fairy Project and, and is um, are we creating a new industry here in New Zealand with the cannabis industry that uh, you are part of and, and, and several other startups and companies are part of currently or, or is this something that we already have and we're not acknowledging and, and we might be kind of doing some people some disservice from not acknowledging it um, I think the the green fairies have have fulfilled a role uh, this far, and and, and 
and they, they continue to do so. Um, they're kind of the de facto doctors for a lot of people and I think that's a situation that is not ideal. But at the same time, it, it is them who have brought us this far and who have brought a lot of families and, and patients and, and, and lives through, like out, out of danger. And, and the, there's a lot of talk about these people still being criminals or, or calling what they do as um, providing illicit cannabis. Um, and and, and how, how is that affecting their lives? How is that, how is that affecting their effectiveness as healers or, or caretakers? Mm. And, and why, are, why are we not doing something else? Yeah, and again, you know, have to pay homage to those individuals. Likewise, the breeders who have kept the plants alive at significant risk and cost to themselves and and their families, um, and for those that have provided it then onto others in in, in raw form or in um, in made up remedies and so on, they have provided an essential service for many families that have been desperate and unable to afford or even access if even if they could afford um, the medicines through the bureaucracy and so on so um, yeah I, I agree there's a risk um, in undervaluing that role and continuing to marginalize that community that has served others so um, so well for so long um, the language we use is probably important I was um, lazy and uh, an Instagram photo I posted the other last week with um, what I called the whole um, medical cannabis industry in the room on one day and took some flack for that which was justified um, and, but I do also think there's a difference between legal and uh, illicit and that's just the fact of life and, and so that language is um, not necessarily helpful but it, it's a reality um, and and in using that language, we can um, reinforce some of that stigma. Um, but what's what's the alternative language that we should be using um, in those conversations and in those descriptions? Um, Do you think that matters a lot? Oh, I think it does. I think it matters both for the people that are involved, obviously, as um, suppliers and uh, receivers of those illicit um products and it matters to the industry I think if we don't acknowledge that reality um, and the contribution and commitment that those people have made how we acknowledge that I think it probably should be more than just words and I think those individuals involved will have to make you know make their own choices into the future as hopefully products become more accessible more consistent um, more uh, predictable and um, more researched um, then both the, the the buyers will decide whether they want to pay for for that um, and likewise the um, the sellers or the suppliers will decide whether there's an ongoing need for for them to be doing and whether they're prepared to um, to continue providing that that service um, so you know, I, th I would be interested in um, proposals for um, how we can honour and um, and look after those who have um, held the the torch. And I have one <laughs> a national holiday. 
Yeah, cool. Yeah, we should have that. I don't think we'll get that as a national, <laughs> as in all of the issues that the country has to celebrate and recognise. It's probably fairly well down the list for <laughs> most most people. We, you know, a bunch of us could do that, and we could. could start Would you that. say that is because we're a minority, or? Yeah, I just don't think it's on most people's radar as a super important thing. It's a small group of people um, that have helped a small group of people, um, and compared to you know looking at what. The, the campaigns over decades for just the New Zealand New Zealand wars um, holiday has been you know, still not one. Um, yeah. And so yeah, I mean, go for it if, if you think that's <laughs> the best way to celebrate them. Uh, I think we'll there might be there. other ways, like um, opportunities for um, including them in the the regulated market. Um, how that happens, you know, the amnesties and so on. Um, giving jobs to those that want them in, in the industry that's paid employment based on the expertise and, and giving them royalties for you know formulations and so on that, that they bring um, scholarships and research institutes and so on to really kind of um, help them uh, accelerate the level of um, evidence base to the, the products that they I like that want. And yeah, it's probably a bunch of others. I haven't put a lot of time and energy into it, but if those people wanted to, you know, and yourself, uh, <laughs> think about a bunch of opportunities. Uh, you know, I'm I'm personally open to those, um, and I think the regulators, maybe um, the politicians, maybe. Again, I just I think it's the story needs to be told, and it has been to a limited degree in the media, um, but most. I suspect the majority of New Zealanders still see green theories as breaking the law and being bad people because of it, rather than good people helping sick people, which is what they are. Um, sometimes themselves too, because sometimes yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's the sickest of, of the green theories that actually put a lot more effort into it to, to yeah. help other people. Yeah. I mean, because if, if, you're, if, you, if you're knowingly dying, you might just do a little bit extra for for the people that are mm. remaining right yep. um so this is bringing us slowly to the juicier bits of, of the conversation as as i'd like to to see it um so i come from colombia and in colombia i was forced to leave my home and relocate because of the violence that was going on there um and then going to another city i was forced to come here and relocate again um and that war is still going on in Colombia, and and uh, judging by the actions from the current government, it, it just will keep going on for uh, a number of years, and that is something that I have to deal with every day. But um, there's another war that a lot of people don't acknowledge at all, and it's the war on drugs, and and which is and, related to the war in exactly. Colombia. Yeah, it's absolutely. Um, I think the war on drugs inflamed the, the civil war that we, we've had going on in Colombia for the last 60 years and in such a way because um, both, 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 both of the biggest uh, actors on the conflict who were the guerrillas and the paramilitary got their hands in a lot of illicit money um, that came from the US uh, and Europe um, and then they, they finally they, they ended up just building bigger bombs and, and getting bigger guns and, and getting um, mercenaries to come train them from Israel and stuff like that. 
Um, that was a lot of fun for a lot of people, but it's um, a lot of people are not so fortunate to come have come out on on top. Um, and I think patients here in New Zealand and and green fairies here in New Zealand and and gen in general drug users here in New Zealand have uh, suffered some of the same consequences. I'm not going to say it's the same as it is in Colombia, thankfully not. Uh, but um, I think that there's there's a need of reparation at least in a symbolic way um, and I think it's a worldwide need not just Colombia not just New Zealand or the US it's just um, the war on drugs has been used to to push down a lot of good people and, and it caused a lot of pain and death and mm. and displacement in my case mm. um, and and I don't, I don't see much talk around that subject here in New Zealand. I, I see a lot of talk about um, getting a sensible, uh, well-informed kind of a drug policy, um, and that's great. That's what we need. But we, we also need to acknowledge all of the harm that's been done by this government and and all of the governments worldwide, and then how how necessary that is for actually moving forward yeah um i see also in facebook a lot of people that are not are are naturally distrustful of anyone that comes uh to talk to them about cannabis um like we don't want big corporate here we don't want be a big pharma here uh we don't want big money involved uh get out of here fuck you etc etc uh and, and it's really weird for me to see those uh, reactions from the same people that are having all of those meaningful conversations I talked to you about. Um, but I think that the, the, these reactions, and, and, and this is a, a basic human thing, is they're, they're coming from pain, from a, a place of, of uh, wounds not healed, and, and a lot of, of mistreatment, a lot of persecution, a lot of trauma. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of PT, um, green fairies have PTSD from being just always on the on the run. Um, why why aren't we why aren't we talking about this, Mark? Uh, I think part of it's a progressive um, situation where, if you look at what's happened in the states, where they, in you know North America, where it has been legalized. After that, you get the uh, amnesty, you know, like the um, the clean slate yeah, policy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so convictions get expunged and so on. But um, so I just think it's it's going to happen, but New Zealand's not quite ready for that conversation yet. Um, we've still got to get over the line with legal and you know just medicals just got there, um, and we've got this whole conversation around legal, and I think that will be part of that conversation and we'll see what the provisions of that um, bill are when it comes out this year um, whether they're prepared to include that at this point or not it sounds like they're prepared to include grow your own and things and in this you know sort of natural justice would say that people that have grown their own in the past if it was illegal is now illegal should have those convictions wiped definitely as a as a minimum um, so yeah and I just also think in terms of the wider war on drugs it's just so off the radar for sheltered little New Zealand, we just don't know how good we've got it as a country. Not saying that individuals in the country don't have uh, really, really uh, 
difficult situations on a daily basis, whether that's from um, a health condition or socio-economic or cultural or whatever. There's there's massive trauma and um, and challenges for for many people, but. Um, the war on drugs, we haven't seen so many executions, you know, extrajudicial ex- executions by... Here in New Zealand, yeah, yeah. By the government, you know, in Philippines where you can go out and shoot a drug dealer just because they're a drug dealer, anybody can do that, it doesn't have to be a cop even. Um, okay. Ironically, who are now legalising medical cannabis just a couple of days ago, so um, yeah, go figure. But um, <laughs> So, you know, I was at the UN and that was very interesting to see which countries were super opposed to the idea of um, ending the war on drugs and ending the goal of a drug-free world, which is a stated UN um, goal, so by 2025. And they keep pushing this, you know, so again, it's a perpetual uh, war on drugs. So they no had end. a set date? Yeah, which was 2016 or 18 originally. Oh, they um, failed. Yeah, and then it moved to 2020, then it was 2025, and now they, the last meeting is 2030. So. It's just going to continue, but there are those states that are also pushing back and saying this is a failed policy. It's not working. Look at the evidence. Um, this is completely unjust. You're breaching human rights on a daily basis and using it, that war on drugs as an excuse to cause all sorts of other human rights um, violations. So, um, but New Zealand's just quite removed from most of that stuff. It's um, so it's not really on our radar on a day-to-day basis for those green theories for. For cannabis growers they know what the war on drugs is all about and we see the helicopters flying over our house and around our um you know around the paddocks um and that let alone the the arrests and um and the taking of not just people's income but fathers and mothers and and so on and incarcerating them for growing a plant that's not hurting anybody so that's all going to have to end and um and it's time's coming yeah as okay. is mine yeah all right <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us. Um, you've, you've brought us a lot of, of new knowledge and, and or just, just the, the insight that you can provide for us. is It's amazing to be able to pick your head um, just a bit. And hopefully we'll continue to do so in the future. So Definitely. thank you very much for coming. There we go. That was Manu Kadi from Rua Bioscience, formerly Hikaranga Cannabis Company. Um, that was a very fun and, and just interesting and full of perspective and knowledge conversation. Like I, I really, really had a very good time meeting with him. We had to cut it short for basically timing issues. And he had a, uh, another commitment and well, I, I was <laughs> very happy to accommodate whatever time he was available to give to the podcast so we do have a rain check for uh, a, a second part of this conversation and that will be coming out uh, as soon as um, he gets back in the country um, that should be within the next month um, a lot more things are going to be talked about in that conversation because it's I'm very sure it's not going to be just about cannabis and not just about patients and, and not just about uh, Ruatoria and Rua Bioscience and, and their, their role in the cannabis scene, but more about activism and housing and, and a lot of other uh, issues of interest. 
um, a reminder for you if you're listening to this and you want to get involved and send us voice messages and, and your contribution to, to the conversation if you go to anchor.fm slash howling wolf you can find there a little button that you can press and send us a voice message just to send any questions there any concerns share your views or just say hi hey mom i'm on on a podcast anything like that we are more than happy to, to welcome you in our conversation um next up we are gonna have pearl schumberg i said it right this time um and a conversation in depth for a, a very a very long uh, recording about the reality for patients that want to access cannabis in Atoaro, New Zealand. And this one is a doozy. So keep your, your eyes peeled for the new podcast coming up later this week. And I hope you have a lovely morning, afternoon, or night, whatever time you're listening to this. I hope it catches you at the right time. So take care and I'll see you next time.